Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. What if one day you decided to quit your job without having another one already lined up? This is the email that Anya Kamenet sent which instantly grabbed my attention. Anya covered education for many years at NPR. She speaks, writes, and thinks about learning and the future. Anya is a returning guest. You can find our previous conversation in the show notes below. Our conversation this time focuses on two main points. One, how does someone finally reach their tipping point to make such a bold career decision? And number two, the impact that children that COVID has had on children, which she addresses in her new book, The Stolen Year, how COVID changed children's lives and where we go now. When reflecting on her career, Anya points out that from her perspective, a career fills three buckets, financial, day-to-day, experience, and identity. Anya also talks about her struggle with the best way to use her talents and skills in service of making the world better. The cost of closing our schools for so long during COVID, made with good intentions, has not been yet fully reckoned with. Anya makes this case that in 2020, it wasn't a lost year, it was taken from our children by years of neglect and bad faith. We have failed to put them first. To get more people involved in this critical conversation, the first five listeners who email me, I will send you a free copy of Anya's new book. Please enjoy my conversation with Anya Kamenetz. So Anya Kamenetz, hopefully I said your last name right again. Uh, welcome back to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Thanks for having me back, Paul. Um, I saw, so this is in true form, these newsletters that you send out work because <laughs> I, it was a few weeks ago, I got one of your newsletters and the first sentence says, I just quit my job and I don't have anything else lined up. And I'm like, oh man, I need to reach out to Anya again and have a conversation. <laughs> so cool. Well, you you were like, what happened? Is everything okay? How's she doing? <laughs> so, you know, I I deal with so many people that um have this love-hate relationship with their their with their career, but mm-hmm. I I rarely work with somebody that just says, okay, I've, I've had enough. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to have to be really, really careful with this podcast. As you well know, I tend to talk about my wife, Teresa, and my own family a lot. So mm-hmm. I, I have to leave her out of this episode as much as possible because mm-hmm. she may be struggling with a few things uh, on, on her mm-hmm. own plate. But mm-hmm. um, when, when I saw that, I'm, th- th- what sparked me was one, I was hoping that you were okay. But number two is I wanted to find out what was going through your mind and your family's mind as you like made this decision. Yeah. And, and I think that that would be really beneficial for, for our audience. So why don't yeah. we, there's several things I want to touch on. I want to touch on the new book. I want to touch on the old book, which was about screen time, which is originally how the two of us uh, connected um, a mm-hmm. few years ago mm-hmm. um, and how that's kind of what new data you have on that through, through COVID. Yep. Yep. So let's let's start with the job situation first. Sure, sure, sure. So it's funny that you mentioned your spouse because I think um, a lot of us kind of have this code and you come home and you kind of like dump on them about the day and, and hopefully that's a healthy back and forth. But at some point, if you have a partner, you know, you're kind of like, well, you, are you just venting or do you actually want to talk about this? Because uh, I hear you coming with the same complaints all the time and I don't really see this fixing. And I think for a lot of us during, you know, we sort of have this love-hate relationship with our jobs and no job is going to be perfect. And they, that's why they call it work, right? That's why they right. pay you. Um, but, the, but the question is, can you better your, your situation? And, and what are the signs that tell you that it's really worth it 
Um, and I really think about a job in three buckets. Obviously, there's a financial that is paramount. You have to feed your family. You have to be able to have that stability. And different people have very different situations as far as their obligations. Second part is what is a day-to-day, right? What are your experiences there? Um, are you kind of, is it good? Is it bad? Are you learning? Are you not learning? Are you treading water? Is it incredibly frustrating? Is it toxic? Um, you know, is there a management situation or a coworker situation? And then the third, I would say, is your identity. So we really are t- society to be plugged by our professional identities. And I think any woman, for example, who has taken time to be out of the workforce knows that feeling when you're at a barbecue or something and you say, I'm at home and somebody, you see their eyes drift over your shoulder to look yeah. to someone else, right? Because it's so devalued. Um, so for me, um, financially, I've always had, actually, this is sort of true of all three, but I've always had a portfolio approach to my career. Even though I've been you know, member of the company at NPR, correspondent for eight years, I always had my books. I always had, you know, conversations like this one. I did speaking and I did freelance work outside of my job. And that was just, I am, I am easily distracted. (laughs) I like to have my fingers in a lot of things and I like to keep up my skill set in a lot of areas. So that was helpful for me to realize that, oh, okay, I can change the mix and I'll still be able to pay the bills. um, Even if I'm giving up the big plank in the middle. Um, So that, that was, that's important. Uh, when it comes to the day-to-day, I really loved my day-to-day, but the the key thing, for, and, and I and I, hesit- I went back and forth, so the, the idea to, plant, to leave NPR was planted in me. I was looking to change the nature of my job in 2019. The pandemic was a huge interruption in all of that and just kind of like hunker down, like do what you can to get through the next couple of days kind of thing. Um, so that was my interruption, but really it was the plan from that period. So I really, I had a lot of ease when I actually was like ready to say goodbye because I'd really thought about it. I'd really worked toward it. And the tipping point for me was to say, you know, yeah, the grass is always greener. It's not that my life as a freelance person with a lot of projects is going to be better every day. I'm going to be skipping around and seeing bluebirds, but I am a person who needs to grow and learn. I need to learn in order to learn. I need to change what I'm doing. And I wasn't able to do that in my job. So that was the impetus to leave. I I think that's actually where I, I was going to ask the question. Like, what was your tipping point? Because that's the question that I asked so many people yeah. um, about their job. It doesn't matter it, mm-hmm. whether it's finances, their job, their kids. Like, what is the what is the tipping point that actually gets somebody to say, okay, I've had enough. I'm going to make this change. Because like, as you brought up, you know, you come home, you're bouncing things off your spouse. Are you, are you, is, is your spouse just venting to you or do I need to really take this seriously and, you know, start diving in and try to help? Because like in, in my situation with Teresa or even other families that I work with and I have this conversation, I can tell that that person's hurting. And my, my first natural instinct is to figure out, okay, how can I help? Like yeah. I start going into that, you know, mode where, okay, if you if you're looking at leaving your job, you know what what are you thinking about doing? And it just starts like a whole series of questions. Yeah. But everybody's tipping point is different. And every time I think that okay, this person has reached their tipping point, then they still stay. And it's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, the so so that really, Paul, I really think goes to this to the third bucket I was talking about, which is identity, because especially as you get kind of on in your life. I mean, we're all kind of expecting to be exploring and trying different things on, although it's very uncomfortable. It can be very uncomfortable in our twenties, but when you get a little bit older, it's like, ah, it's like if you got up and you didn't, you look at your ID and there's no name on the ID. It's like, who am I actually? And if I'm not correspondent, national public radio, like who am I? So that's the part I think that really sticks people a lot of the time. I also think people can get, I, I, hopefully I'm going to say this the right way. They can yeah. get comfortably uncomfortable, yeah. meaning that they just, and I think you kind of alluded to this, like in your need to like, I need to grow, I need to learn. And that wasn't the environment that you were in. And I think a lot of people, especially as we get older, so I'll, I'm I'm in my mid mid forties now. And I've seen this a lot with, with people I worked with when I was in my you know twenties and thirties that were in their forties and fifties. Is that they just get to the spot where it's like, I I know 
that the devil I know is better than the devil I don't in in sort of way. And so I'm like, I don't really, even though I'm unhappy here, what am I, what what else am I going to do? Like, there's no, I don't see another way, way out. And that to me is very, it's, it's sad in a way um, because they still have so much to give. They want to do something different. They want to make a change, but again, they're just kind of stuck in this rut where it's like, I know what I have here and I'm just going to stick, you know, write, write it out. I hate that term. Write it out. I'm just going to write it yeah. out. I'm like, yeah. and I was having this conversation with somebody the other day and I, I just bluntly told them like, you are, you are too old to say, write it out. And this person was in their, it was young. I mean, in their early forties, yeah. like you, you've only got this one life. I know it sounds corny, but you're, you're, you only have this one life and you only have so many years. And Mm -hmm. so what do you want to do? I love that. And I really seek out examples of people older than me who have made changes, sometimes really dramatic changes uh, and found that courage because there's so much renewal in that, you know, and and I was talking to a woman the other day um, in her seventies and she uh, she had raised two kids. She lived like a pretty, pretty conventional life and she got more drawn into her church. And one day she was at her friend's ordination, friends being ordinate, ordinate, ordained as an Episcopal minister. And as the priest put their hands over her head, this woman's head, the person I was talking to was watching her friend and heard a voice that said, that could be you. And then they were leaving the service and another priest came up to her and said, I know what you were thinking. I saw it on your face that you were thinking that could be me. And so at 45 years old, she went to divinity school. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Those, those, (laughs) those are really powerful. And in some, and to some degree, I think maybe sometimes that ends up being the motivation or that tipping point that people need to hear. They need to know that somebody else did this and it's yeah. completely possible because yeah. I know like when I started this, when I started, you know, Tama tell well, almost 12 years ago. Wow. I was like, um, I, I knew what I kind of wanted to do or and I had a vision for where I wanted it to go and what I wanted it to be. But I'm like, I was still mirrored in my corporate career and trying to do both at the same time. Yeah. And like, like you, I had a lot of irons in the fire and I was, it was, it was terrifying, especially because at that time we had, Teresa and I had just had the triplets. Wow. So, it, you know, talk about from a financial standpoint, I'm like, well, giving yeah. up my like uh, very good paying corporate job to go into the unknown like this is probably not the wisest thing. And that's why for the first eight years I had the firm, I I did both. And up until almost five years ago, I, I've been into it, you know, full time. But I think having those conversations with people that went through that same struggle and I saw that they made it like it's, it's possible. It is possible. You know, it's really, it's really great that you mentioned that because I, I have to credit the networks that I've had and invested in over, especially the last couple of years, maybe ironically, but with the help of zoom and I think people's ability to be intentional about how they connected with each other. I have, networks that I'm able to people that are peers and it's a friendship, but it's also something where we're on a growing edge together. I have accountability group and I have a a group of authors. And so just people that you can compare notes with, you know, and you're not competitive with them. Yeah. That's a really great point because I was just going to ask you this because I know when I transitioned into a solo entrepreneur, the hardest thing I, I dealt with was not being around people. Like yeah. all the time. And, and you ask anybody like that knows me, like Paul's a very, very uh, people person. Yeah. And I was going to ask you like, if that was a struggle with you, because I think of like what you do as far as like being an author or a writer, it could get, you could be in a very lonely position where it's just like you and the four walls. And it's like, okay, I need to talk to somebody. And well, it's kind of funny. I mean, so I'm a reporter. So I, for the book I have coming out, The Stolen Year, I followed five families in detail through the pandemic, which means I was checking in with them. I was calling them, Zooming with them. And then on top of that, I interviewed, you know, 
dozens of other people and 150 experts. So I was like, if you look at my calendar, it was like sometimes like five hours a day of Zooms. Yeah. So like I never felt like I was I mean, of course, I felt like I was stuck at home because we were stuck at home, but I did not feel lonely because I had. And honestly, it was really interesting because before that, I would have said that if you really want to get down to things with people in an interview, you need to sit down with them in person. And I still feel like that's very good way to do it. But you can do it on Zoom too, especially when people are able to invest in it. And if you're willing to take the time. And I think a lot of those interviews were extremely intimate. You you know, you're in your house, they're in their house, and you're really going through a version of the same thing. So did you... So. I want to get to the to the new book, the stolen year, in in a minute. But I, I actually want to go back to um, the first book that really got my attention in in reaching out to you, which was um, Screen Time. Yeah. What have you learned from COVID, if you will, the last two years that would update the 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 book, if you will, or the data that you that you discovered back then? Yeah. I mean, I think there's been a huge um, uh, change in the the way that we look at the role of screens in kids' lives because they came to take over so many different functions. And, you know, I talked to one researcher very early on, digital media researcher, and it was like, this is kind of like our dream experiment because what if you could turn off the outside world and only have the screens? What would that that do? You know, and I think we obviously saw that it's a very double-edged sword because it brought us learning connection, the ability to stay working and, and also brought us, you know, so much feeling of intensified isolation, alienation. Um, You know, there's anecdotal reports of things like just what does it do to kids to stare at their own image on zoom all day? So there were things about eating disorders are going up. Kids gender dysphoria is, is coming up because they're looking at themselves they're seeing comparisons between them, their own bedroom and other kids' bedrooms in their school. And they feel bad about that. So there's like, there's just so many different dimensions to it. And on the positive side, I mean, what I tried to bring to it and the book came out in paperback updated in 2020. Um, and the conversations I was having at a lot of virtual events around that time that there's humility to it because we, nobody was perfect. Everybody kind of softened and, um, try to, you know, you had to do what you had to do. And so I think humility is really good. And I think understanding that this technology can be positive in kids' lives is good too. Um, it's everything in moderation. Yeah. Cause I mean, even as we're recording this today, Teresa had to go into the office. And so I'm here with the four kids and basically I'm using <laughs> electronic devices as my, as my babysitter today. And, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm as much as I still hate that and as much as Teresa and I still struggle with trying to set parameters around it, I'll be honest with you. It, it it's gotten harder because mm-hmm. it's, I feel like, and this is probably make me sound like a horrible parent, but I, I'm to the point where I'm just tired of fighting about it with them. And I, yeah, I, we try to monitor as best we can, but is it, is it really worth all the the drag out fights that we've had over mm-hmm. over them, you know, over the last year or two? And I don't know. I don't know what the answer is because part of me feels like, okay, I know they're probably overdoing it, but I don't know if I have a. I don't know. I don't necessarily have a solution or a better option. So are you are you venting or do you want me to to get come back with some advice? <laughs> oh, you can come back with advice. <laughs> okay, all sure right, just checking, a, just checking. There's a lot of people that parents <laughs> yeah. that we have the same conversation with. So, yes, yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Just just wanted to check. So, <laughs> so the way that I look at this situation is, um, your instinct is right that you know anything that turns into a major bone of contention, obviously, could be handled in a more skillful way. Um, so the first thing to do is to kind of look at what are your, what are your goals and what are your capacities right now? Okay. You don't have someone at home with you right now. So you have to do your job. So there's, there's an understanding that this is a reason that this is being allowed. Um, And we wish we had a full-time nanny to shadow our kids all the time, but we don't have that, you know, or we're spending our money on something else and that's fine too. Um, So screens have a role to play. Um, the conflict is reduced if there are clear boundaries and expectations that are consistent 
and that are enforced. Um, and you enforce things by turning them to routines and by creating a choice structure where they are, you know, the screens are hard to access. There are alternatives in place. Um, and uh, the other thing that we're really trying, so it's very, very hard to do if you're like, you know, if it's in the minute and you're handing it over, that's, you know, that's something that happens a lot, but you have to kind of figure out a way to maybe at the beginning of the week or, you know, as you go from the summer vacation to the school year, be like, this is what the times are that we're going to say yes. These are other times when we're going to say no. Um, I also like to say that there's like a third slow tech option. I know a lot of kid parents who are, um, and we are one of some of these parents who are like audiobooks are okay. So we have like a more, a, like a more lax policy in audiobooks and audiobooks and coloring. That's one thing that we like do together that tends to occupy even the younger kids. And so that's like a mid range option. I wish they were playing on their own, but this is better than watching something that's TV or an app that's like really going to hook them up, hook them in. Um, the, the other thing is to kind of flip it around and say like, I, what do you want? Like you want, your kids to go outside and play. You want them to have unstructured time where they're really kind of on their own for a bit um, because the boredom is so important for creativity. They need to need to be able to handle that a little bit. Um, you want them to be with you and have that one-on-one time. So just intentionally, it's just like you, you crowd out the bad with the good. So how, where am I going to have that, that, that focused time to play with my kids? Where can I put that into my day? Um, when it comes to the unstructured time, a lot of times I'll say like, I will hand over the iPad in 30 minutes. You have to amuse yourself until then. Like there is a intentional period of time where you have to amuse yourself and it is time limited. Um, the outdoor time we like always try to enforce as a family. So, and then bedtime, bedtime's super important. So important. And getting the, getting the screens away from them at bedtime is really important. And if you can like half an hour before to wind it down. Um so then you're you're flipped your script from like what I'm trying to prevent happening to what I want to make happen when you do have the time and when you do have the focus and the ability. Yeah, I think that's one of the the challenges too is dealing with boredom. And because yeah. I remember probably growing up like like <laughs> every kid like hates being bored. Like you you gotta always have something to do. And you know, I hear that from my kids, like after like five minutes of not, you know, doing something and, and I never necessarily know what a good answer to tell them is besides the, to chill out, which obviously never works. Um, mm -hmm. is there any specifics around like how to deal with, with that in and of itself with, when it comes to the boredom? Um, it's a huge opportunity because what is happening in that moment is they are testing their executive functioning and they're testing their emotional management skills. So rushing them past that discomfort with a distraction is not helpful to them. And it's not helpful for you. Like it, it it's getting us out of a, of it's a short-term pain, long-term gain situation. So being explicit about that can be good. Like, Hey buddy, I know it's hard and you are getting more patient. I can see you getting more patient, you know? And then the other thing is like, engaging them. And I've seen this. So, so I sent my daughter to an unschooling um, summer camp for a week and in unschooling, it's unstructured, right? That's the whole point. But really what they do is they're having like a startup. It's like a startup, like the kids sit down and they make a plan. They have a deep, they have a journal, an image journal where they're like, this is what I, how I'm going to spend my morning. One, two, three. And then they have a meeting and they go around. They're like, this is what I'm going to do in the morning. Does anyone want to do this with me? So they're setting goals. They're planning. And all of a sudden, like, it's an exciting thing. And like, they might be playing pickup sticks. Like they might be like, you yeah. know, uh, counting ants. It doesn't matter. The point is that they made a plan and they executed and they love doing that. That is, that is really, really cool. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> because one of, one of the reasons why, like, even though my, I felt like my kids were probably at least the triplets were too old to go back to the summer care program that we'd always send them to. Mm -hmm. We, Teresa and I decided to send them back because it's not that we didn't want them at home. It's just that I felt like we would have been back in the COVID situation where we would have had to rely on the screens every day to get yeah. them through. We just didn't want to do that. So mm -hmm. the triplets did not want to be there. They made that well known, but my plus one Mackenzie, she did. And, and once they were there, they, they, they were fine. They enjoyed it for the most part. It's mm -hmm. just, it was the getting them there. That was, was the hardest part. So. 
I hear that. I mean, when I was in really good form with like a pandemic, when we had like a week with no childcare, we would do like, we would take post-it notes. We would write down activities, you know, and then uh, depending on what we were doing, we might like mix them up and just pull one out of the hat. Or what the kids would like to do is we would, we would draw the schedule on the chalkboard and then they would like pick out the post notes and be like this, this, this. Oh, cool. Right. And it's yeah, like, that is really cool. <laughs> maybe we're super geeks, but like, so boredom turns into like, what's the opportunity here? How can yeah. I make it? And, and kids love cho- choice. They love thinking like they have a choice. And and that's why this is why, I mean, this is what early childhood programs do. This is what kindergartens do. This is what summer camps do. They have two things. They have great options and they have an encouragement of making choices and they lean very heavily on schedules and structures and rotations, you know, to make, that's how you make the day go and, and you really enrich it. And by the way, so the, the book, and I'll link to the show notes, the book is called the art of screen time. So Let's move in to the to the new one, which is a yeah. meaty, meaty topic: um, the stolen year. So, why don't you walk us through um, the genesis behind um, how you started thinking about writing the book, and then how it kind of came together? So, when the pandemic started, as as I alluded to, I was um, working from home. Uh, covering education for national public radio. And I have my two kids at home. So my husband and because of my background reporting um, to some extent internationally, but also from new Orleans after Katrina, I knew all of the functions that school plays in society. And I knew that when schools close, there is a massive and reverberating impact that can last for years, even when the closure is only a few weeks. So I wrote a piece in April of 2020 that, laid out based on the research, what are we going to expect to see? We're going to expect to see um, girls taking care of their siblings, older people dropping out to work, uh, young kids feeling isolated and depressed, lack of basic needs being fulfilled, academic success going down, inequality increasing. This is what is seen around the world when schools close, whether it's an earthquake, whether it's a hurricane or a pandemic. Um, So, Then I kind of, um, so I knew that was going to happen and I started, I was following parents, teachers, um, you know, from my perch as a reporter, I started working on the book, um, you know, in the spring and summer of 2020 and just following in detail as closely as I could. And I, I, I was, I'm focused in the book on five families from all over the country, very diverse set of circumstances. Um, and really, I just talk about what the impact was like. I talk about the mental health crisis. I talk about the impact on kids on the margin, kids in the foster care system, uh, incarcerated kids, um, those with special needs. I mean, 14% of kids in this country with um, some kind of a special need. So it's not a small number. Wow. I didn't know that was that big. Yeah. Special education. It serves kids from three to 21. And um, I mean, it's such a vast range. You know, but these are kids who have some kind of uh, individualized right. education plan. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we have a very diverse group of kids in school in this country. And we have so little social, social safety net. Right. So how did you end up choosing the five families that you ended up following around? Yeah, it was um, an interesting combination. So we did a call out uh, with NPR very early on to talk to teachers that were parents so those are people who really were on both sides of the of the of the dime there. And um, two of the families came from that. Patricia, um, that's her real name. She lives in Washington, D.C., and she has two kids. Um, and Jeannie, who I which I call her, she lives in Oklahoma and she has five kids. Um, and then uh, there was a family that was very affluent in New York City, an emergency room doctor who got COVID in March 2020. So I kind of followed her situation with her three kids. Um out in California, there was a family that contacted me. Actually, the father was the stepfather was a, also a teacher, um, and they had a really unique circumstance because they um, their son had autism and dyslexia, and he was just starting to get into gear in school when school shut down. And so, Zoom school is really a horrible situation for him. Um, just it, it just it, it emotionally explosive and just and just terrible in every possible way. What also happened was that the family took in an emergency foster kid at the same time. Um, wait a minute. Would- wait a minute. So this family <laughs> had a, an autistic child and then they they fostered another child as well? People's compassion will just floor you, their ethical commitment. The, the wow. boy that they took in was their son's best friend. 
and their son and this boy had made friends the year that this boy arrived from Southeast Asia as an immigrant. He joined there you know, in the public school classroom. And what I mean, what the kid told me was, you know, my mom sent me to school with cupcakes so I could make friends. And I gave this other kid a cupcake and we made friends and then we came to the birthday party. And so the families had this connection. And so after school shut down, very unfortunately, um, the, the parents had a really serious difficulty and the son reached out, the little boy reached out to his friend's mom. And that's how they ended up getting him placed. Um, and then these two boys had each other. And that was the thing. I mean, they had a really difficult time, especially the autistic kid. But together, they were uh, so much better off, to be honest. Yeah, I I try to, through the pandemic, I tried <laughs> to imagine what it was like for pe- for parents who had younger kids, like kindergarten, first grade, like when you're trying, like kids are trying to learn how to read and write. And I'm like, I would never have the patience to do that. But I, I never really thought about the other side where people had, you know, parents had kids that have disabilities, whether it was autism or dyslexia or, you know, whatever, what, whatever um, disability they may have had, how God awful challenging that had to be. It was a straight up disaster because so many of those kids have zero ability to benefit from any, any, service delivered over a screen, whether that's speech therapy, occupational therapy, you're supposed to be holding, showing you get how to hold a pencil, you know, on a screen or, but also just engaging them in, in, in school. I mean, this was a kid who was explosive. He was violent and to make him sit and listen to a teacher who's taking 15 minutes to, to roll call on zoom just was not that tenable. Doesn't work. <laughs> no, no. Um, and then, yeah, so, so yeah, I think those are, those struggles really were out of the light. People didn't notice that this was happening and, it, and it's really upsetting. Not to mention the kids who didn't get evaluated because they were zero to three. I mean, I had the, the most difficult circumstances um, is a woman I call Heather in St. Louis. She has eight children. And when her, and she was marginally employed, she worked at a homeless shelter. So her daughter was diagnosed autistic. Um, She's about two in the middle of the pandemic, no services, no support. It's basically like, and I, I, I visited her in April, 2021 and she was incredibly patient. You know, this girl is, we went to the aquarium. The girl is like really having a hard time when the lights are changing, when it's getting dark and she's screeching and she's having like a full on meltdown, you know, and the mom is holding her and like soothing her. And it's, she obviously has seen it a lot, but God, like get them some support. Yeah. I, so when, when you were going through this process, like, did you, did, did it, obviously you met with people in person and in virtual and, and you may have alluded this before Anya. So correct me if I'm wrong, but did, was there a difference that, that being in person versus being virtual did as far as like getting the story or the the core of what these people were struggling with or dealing with? So when it came to the families, um, I was really reporting from a home largely through the spring of 21 because I didn't have my vaccine and I didn't have the ability to miss school and work, miss work and miss childcare if I was having to have a quarantine for 10 days for, you know, multiple reasons. So in April 21, once I had my two shots, I took a road trip and I visited all the families and I spent a couple, at least a couple of days with each of them. So that was the time when I was able to like connect and, and it was great. I mean, we'd had like a hundred, you know, we'd had probably 20 or 30 zoom conversations up until that point. So I really had the ability to have both sides of it. Um, yeah. And then some of the other, I, I interviewed a couple of other people in person when I was in San Francisco and a couple of other people in New York in person um, but that was really the bulk of it was on that trip. Okay. So when you look back at all the conversations, both written and unwritten, what would be like, I don't know, a few of the major points that you would want people to, to get when they read the book, like make, making sure that you did not miss these like two to three critical points. Like what would, what would that be? So if you're reading this book because you are a concerned citizen um, and someone who's civically engaged, I hope that you are moved to back basic family policies, like the ones that were just 
knocked out of the what was remained of the Build Back Better bill, family pay, family leave, childcare subsidies, um, and support from public schools because public schools have had a really rough time. They are trying to hire a lot of people now. They still have federal funding, but they're losing students and they need to get back on their feet. So that's that's like the public part of it. If you can, are, uh, yeah. Can I interrupt for a minute? Because I actually brought up a good point because this is something that I see ge- geographically in my area where there has been a mass exodus. And I don't know the number. So maybe I'm like using too strong a language here from public to private schools. Have, have, do you have data on that? Do you, do you have any idea like how big that transition has been? Um, I... Uh, there's been, so, so just to be clear, so there have, there was a historic drop in school enrollment across the board in the first pandemic school year, fall 2020. Um, there were some signs of, and that was both private and public. So private schools also lost kids in 2020. That was mainly driven by people keeping their kids home from kindergarten and pre-K because they didn't want to send their kids to Zoom kindergarten. Right. Um, (laughs) Now, the situation is a little bit less clear because in the second pandemic school year, 21 to 22, there was an, there was a bounce in private schools. It's different locality to locality. And, you know, there's the parochial school market, which is like the, the majority of private schools are parochial, uh, Catholic schools, other mm-hmm. Christian schools. And then there's the independent schools. The independent schools, which are like some of the most expensive, kind of like high end, they saw a bounce in their enrollment. Um, the Catholic schools also saw a bounce in their enrollment, quite not quite as big. Um, there seems to be kids moving from city school systems to suburb school systems. Charter schools have gained back kids in some places like in New York City. Homeschooling has increased. Um, there is a certain group of kids that we just don't know where they are. So there's no comprehensive like census of kids across the country. And there's a lot of different school districts, like 13,000. Right. So, uh, I worry about the kids. We don't know where they are. <laughs> Even it's just listen to you say that. Like, we don't know where kids are. That yeah. to me is like utterly amazing. Like how we do not know where kids are in, in the school system. It is utterly amazing. But if you think about it, I mean, LA second largest school district in the country just came out and said, we have 20,000 kids. We don't know where they are. And wow. I mean, maybe they went, you know, they could have gone a crap back across the border to Mexico. Like they could be in a charter. Maybe they're in some virtual charter. Maybe they are homeschooling, but they haven't filed the paperwork. Like, but maybe they're just working. Like there was a ProPublica investigation that found children in an Alabama Hyundai parts plant, a Hyundai subcontractor, 11, 12 years old working in that place. Wow. I mean, that's a type of... this is going to sound probably terrible. That's a thing you think about like in other countries, not the yes, U.S. That's right. Or in other centuries, not the 21st century. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. All right. Yeah. Sorry. I, I interrupted you and you were probably in a big train of thought on, on your points from the book. So no, I, not at all. I think so. Your, your first point was civic responsibility. Take, yes. Take action. Get involved. Yeah. Uh, the second point is for families, people that have kids in their lives. Right. Um, recognize this because it affects not only your child, but your child's peer group. Um, we have this, this mental health, these mental health issues, we have social development. So, and academic development, right? Mm -hmm. Social development is something that we're not so used to thinking about how we need to help our kids with their social development. We kind of just expect that they'll learn it as they go. Um, but but for kids, I mean, actually, there's a lot to learn for kids from kids who have special needs because their parents do think about their social development. They think about how can I acclimate them to new experiences? How can I ensure that their peer group is that they're relating to them well? What are the, what's appropriate for them to be able to handle and to do at this age? So getting curious about that, because we know that our kids, you know, it could be benign. They missed out on a couple of years of birthday parties. Maybe they didn't have their first sleepover at the age that, you know, other kids did or um, going to summer camp, things that, you know, where you just learn new things. You learn about yourself. You learn to be more independent. So how can we give those them those opportunities? How can we scaffold it for them um, and help them out? And uh, how do we talk to them about this, about the pandemic and what it meant for us? What was different in 2020, 2021 and how things feel now? Is this something that we 
kind of bury or say you should be over that? Or do we have a vocabulary for talking about it? Do we have a vocabulary for talking about it? Because like you just bringing that up, I, I'm like, I don't think I've talked to my kids about this at all. And yeah. they haven't really asked. It's like, one thing that I've had this conversation with a lot of parents over the last year, it's like we we were before the pandemic, we we're in this high drive, like overscheduled kids, activities, 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 both for, for parents and kids. Then everything yeah. just stopped, shut down. And now I feel like we are just back to like pre-2020, like as far mm. as like the activities and the speed and the quote unquote busyness of life. And it's like, damn, did we learn anything? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think that's, I mean, we're, we're talking about competing pressures, right? One is, Oh, let's cut the, catch them up. Like they didn't get swim lessons. Let's get swim lessons. Like they need tutoring. Let's get them tutoring. And the other hand, it's like, Oh my God, like, are we going to have a minute to ourselves to actually breathe and decide what, you know, and figure out what we really want to be doing. Um, it's tough choices, you know? And I think that's what the conversation is about though, for my kids. It's like, and I'm having this right now, this is the, you know, we're talking in August and we're talking about what the coming school years will look like, what activities we're going to sign up for. I had my five-year-old say to me, uh, like we had to choose between, so she's going into first grade, right? So we had to choose between there's like soccer where you just like kick the ball around the park for 45 minutes. And there's like the league where you have a practice and then a game every weekend. And she was like, mom, I want to try soccer, but I just want to have chill weekends. And I was like, I respect that so much. <laughs> Coming from a, from a, from a, a kid that age, that's actually very impressive that, that they recognize that. I think it's something we, we do try to talk about. It's part of the emotional awareness, right? Like you, you, you know, what it feels like to be overwhelmed, stressed. And then for me to be transparent about like when I have anxiety and when I'm trying to like stress or, or rush things um, and being vulnerable about, vulnerable about that. But, you know, I think the way to talk about it is just to talk about it. Like, hey, it's so nice to be back here and to be able to go to the arcade or the movie theater or whatever it is that we didn't get to do for a while. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be spending this time with you. Like just that gratitude, that recognition. Hey, do you remember when we spent the whole weekend at home and you had like a virtual sleepover with your friends and now you can actually see them in person? That gratitude, I think, is really important. So any any other points that that you want to emphasize from from the book? Um, I just really want people to read it because I don't want to sweep this under the rug. I think the major problem during the pandemic was that we did not recognize or prioritize the needs of children in our decision-making. And that problem and that mistake is going to continue unless we make a concerted effort to change. So please pay attention. I'm very happy to hear you say, Paul, that you didn't think about the needs of kids, you know, special special needs kids. Like, there's always an aspect of this that we haven't considered because it's not part of our experience. And I hope that by reading the book, people will be able to see that and get that perspective. Yeah. I think what you just hit on their perspective, it's like you, you may not have dealt with anybody around, you know, where you live with that situation. Um, but being able to read something like your book, you know, hopefully gives people, you know, perspective. And, and I think, again, I think what you want to do is get people involved civically and, 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 you know, standing up for kids, basically. That's exactly right. Yeah. I, yeah. Because you, I didn't, I may have read this in your background during some of our past conversations, but what was the work that you did or reporting that you did with kids in Katrina? Yeah. So um, I was a young reporter. I was, I turned 25, I read around Katrina. Uh, my parents were affected. They were evacuated from their house. Um so I spent uh, about six months that year down there uh, reporting. I also volunteered in a school there. So there was a, a one-room schoolhouse. Some teachers started up um, when the schools were closed for the kids that were there. And so I did reporting at the time for the Village Voice. And then 10 years after Katrina, I went back and did a series with NPR reflecting with people on, on what happened and the lingering effects. So this because you had mentioned that you with any you know natural disaster whether it's pandemic earthquake hurricanes floods that 
that there's there's data, there's evidence there that shows that there's a long oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's devastating these kids, and it's not just a one year or two year time period. It's yeah more than that. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I, I sure find that very interesting. Absolutely. I mean, we're really talking about cascading effects. So the first thing to think about it, realize is that when schools close, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? There's some there's other major things going on in society, and the pandemic is no exception. There's economic upheaval, social division, um, uncertainty, fear. And so um, in Katrina, what was found was that most of the children who were evacuated enrolled in a new school within a couple of weeks. And depending on where they ended up, that school was most of the time a better school than the one they had left in New Orleans, because the schools in New Orleans are mostly very high poverty, very low achieving. Um, So they didn't miss that many days of classes for the most part. But as they returned to the city, and enrolled again in schools that were new schools. So the city converted into like all charter schools, right? And those charter schools also too had higher levels of funding and very intensive kind of teaching approaches. Still, it took those kids from missing a few weeks of school, two years for their test scores to be on the same path that was predicted by where they were two two years ago before the storm. Wow. So it was a few weeks up to two years. And there was a, an attempt to kind of quantify. So obviously with the pandemic, we saw kids missing anywhere from, you know, three months to to another semester to a semester and like uh, three, three semesters of remote learning. Um, and with remote learning, it is a fraction, you know, of the actual in-person learning. So uh, we are predicting this trajectory of kids taking three years, four years, five years. And obviously when you think about five years, that doesn't help you if you were in eighth grade, right? Because you may not graduate high school. Right. <laughs> so we You run out of time. <laughs> you run out of time. And so what we're seeing now is that um, they're, they're, the numbers from the 21, 22 school year, some of those numbers are in, um, there are gains in the younger grades there aren't really gains in middle school. The middle school kids are not catching up. They're not, they're not catching up on what they lost. And that's really worrisome because we worry a lot about, you know, so, some other research shows like if you fail one class in ninth grade, your chances of not graduating high school skyrocket. Um, it's this gradual process of disconnecting from school, feeling like a failure at school, feeling like you don't have any point at being in school. And and looking at other things that might take up your time. And so we worry about those kids a lot um, at, at, the, at the older edge. One of, one of the last topics I want to I wanna talk about, which I think knowing you and, and your writing and, and your work, you kind of, it's, a, I think, a, probably a core of who you are and what you do. But talk to us about parents and how we should be concerned about our kids if they are struggling with um, mental mental health, um, not just academics or or socially, but because that that seems if there's one thing that from my vantage point that I saw that kind of moved to the front or spotlight because of COVID was the spotlight on mental health. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely! I'm really glad you brought that up. I mean, I alluded to it a little bit with the social development, but um, so with mental health, uh, what we're really looking at with kids are, is it, is there something that's really persistent in their mood that they're not enjoying everyday life activities or their anxiety is such as interfering with the things they would normally enjoy doing. Right. So there's a loss of function is how they talk about it technically. Um, and having those conversations, normalizing that conversation, um, is really important to be able to do up to and including if you suspect a kid is thinking about hurting themselves, you have to be able to ask that. And that's really important. Um, You know, we just launched the 988 mental health hotline and that's something that you can call for yourself or for your kid. If you need a referral or just someone to talk to, that's a national hotline. Um, I think it's really important. There's also a resource that I just found out about called youth mental health first aid. And this is a training that, school personnel and 
youth leaders and parents and even teens are getting, where it's a day-long training that really prepares you to have a conversation with a friend that may be in crisis or a teenager that may be in crisis so that you know the kinds of things that you, to what to say and how to help. Um, and it's got scientific evidence behind it that shows that it can be helpful in increasing the level of community awareness and community health. So we've seen a really uh, positive uh, uptick in people getting that training so that the chances are that if your kid is in trouble, there will be someone around and hopefully it's you that can respond and that can help. Okay. Um, the book releases when? August 23rd. August 23rd. Okay. So obviously Amazon, bookstores, all that. But what what I wanted to do um, for for our for for my audience is you know the the five or even ten people that that send me an email or contact me, um, I will send them a free copy of your book because I think that it's going to have um, a lot of impact. And I think to your point, what we want to do is make people aware give them a different perspective. Like I've learned so much just in this conversation with you about, about this topic and being a parent, obviously it's near, near and dear to all of our hearts. And so, you know, I, I want to be able to, to help you make more people aware and have, you know, a different perspective on, you know, what, what life is like for other people that aren't in your, you know, typical circle, if you will. So, um, so I wanted to let the audience know about that. So you can send me an email. I'll put all this information in the show notes. Um, but usually my, my closing question, I don't know if you remember, is typically what's the best thing about being a parent? So you've already answered that. So I was trying to think of, of, of another uh, kind of a similar question. And it is, what was the, what was the one silver lining of getting through the pandemic for you and your family? I learned a new level of patience and flexibility. Um, I'm noticing it now, actually, that I'm on this beach vacation. I feel like I'm more relaxed than I've ever been because I really learned not to sweat the small stuff. And I learned that if it doesn't happen today, it'll hopefully happen tomorrow. Yeah, I... uh... I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and that's where I was kind of mentioning before. I'm like trying to slow the the speed of life yeah. back down. So yeah. um, Anya, I can't thank you enough. This has been such a great conversation. I always enjoy our time together. And so um, look for the information in your show notes uh, with links to both your books, um, The Stolen Year, which is coming out in a few weeks and The Art of Screen Time. So Anya, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Thank you so much for sharing this with your audience. Thank you so much for doing the giveaway. Um, Thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. (music) 